Hi, I'm Kate Dearden, and you're listening to The Migration Podcast. Welcome back. In this episode, we hear Liberty Chi interview Mira Burmeister-Rudolph. Mira specializes in South Asia and migration studies, and you'll hear her talk about the significant role sub-national governments can play in migration governance. She also talks about the legacies of colonial rule on migration policies today. During the interview, Liberty and Mira mentioned NORCA several times. NORCA is the Department of Non-Resident Keralites Affairs and was established in 1996 by the government of Kerala. It exists to help resident and non-resident Keralites anywhere in India and abroad, as well as to promote the culture and language of Kerala. You'll hear more about it in the episode. Enjoy! Thank you, Mira, for joining us. We wrote a piece recently that was published in Migration Studies looking at Kerala and the role of state actors in migration governance. Could you talk a little bit more about this piece? Yeah, so I was interested, especially in Kerala, because Kerala has traditionally been the state with a lot of out-migration to the Gulf countries. So that started really in the 70s um, with a higher demand in the Gulf countries for labor and also in the early 80s, India made it easier for Indian migrants, especially migrants which were pursue employment in low-wage sectors, to emigrate because before there were really immigration restrictions for that population. And what is interesting in Kerala is that the state has a strong national identity based on historical developments, which I argue also influence the very high levels of social policies in general, but which also then reflects on um, the kind of social protection policies in the transnational sense the state provides to migrants in the Gulf countries. And what I found um, also interesting to see that there's not really a lot of literature on subnational actors within the, the field of emigration state. And I think that's something which also brought to the field with, with that piece. India is a big country and there's no one single migration policy for different kinds of migrants. So maybe you can share with us what you think distinguishes Kerala from, let's say, other states. So... In that sense, there is the immigration regulation, right, which concerns all Indian immigrants, um, especially um, immigrants migrating into a low-wage employment. And there are also some social protection policies by the Indian um, federal state, but these are not really enshrined in laws. And there's always a question also of the implementation that migrants and their family know about these policies. So what is different in Kerala, um, what I mentioned before, of course, they have a longer trajectory of immigration to the Gulf countries. And they have one of the most comprehensive transnational social protection policy programs. So they really cover the pre-departure and the return migration process. There is also a new policy coming up which tries to look into the reintegration of return uh, migrants. And of course, they also have a set of institutions for migrants during the migration process, help desks and also legal advice for migrants in the Gulf countries themselves. 
that works a lot through migrant associations. So I also visited some of the local migrant associations and a lot of them are run by Carolites. And they voluntarily also team up with NORCA, that is the institution which is responsible for these transnational social protection policies. So there's really also this international linkage between the state of Kerala and then communities in the Gulf countries. So in, in that sense, Kerala is regarded as a modest state for these kind of immigrant policies, but also more generally in, in terms of social protection and the human development index. So Kerala is always, has been always regarded as being an outlier in a positive sense in the Indian context. You mentioned the importance of NORCA earlier. Is there any other kind of similar entity to NORCA within India? How do they compare? Yes, there are similar entities as NORCA and especially for states with similar high numbers of outmigration to the Gulf, such as Andhra Pradesh. So basically, NORCA has functioned as a model institution for other states. I think in that sense, NORCA is still kind of a forerunner in, in the breadth of social protection policies they provide, also in the sense of innovation. So they're also trying to introduce a new reintegration program for returned migrants, I think also in light of what happened during COVID-19, that India was really confronted with these large uh, numbers of migrants returning to India. And then, of course, the question is, what do they do? Like how to reintegrate them economically, but also socially. And interestingly, if you look at other states, often the focus is on investing schemes. Naka also has an investing scheme, but... It's one of many programs and for other states such as Uttar Pradesh, the investing program takes just much more prominence over social protection <laughs> policies, which are basically absent. So some states really have a higher focus on the facilitation of migration rather than catering to social protection needs of migrants, which might not be very surprising also given Kerala has this history of social policies. And also if you look, for example, at internal migration, which is also a huge topic in India, Kerala is um, known for catering um, to, to internal migrants in the sense of provision of housing, health services. So what is something new you bring to the table with the space specifically? I think the aspect of subnational state actors having such a, a high leeway of determining policies for migrants abroad, because in the end, they're still Indian citizens, right? But what is important here is really this idea that Kerala tries to maintain its entity as a polity. So one quote I still remember is an official telling me that if they want to continue having Kerala as a polity, 
They also need to cater to populations abroad because such a high number of Keralaites have migrated abroad. And um, I think another interesting aspect is the idea of transnational social protection, which has gained some scholarly attention, but mostly um, by looking at the immigration context, not so much looking at what origin states do for migrants abroad. I think this is also uh, important in the sense of what states um, can do, but also what they're willing to do. So you have another piece coming out in Citizenship Studies where you look at what India does or does not do for its migrants depending on the receiving country or region. Could you share with us a bit about that? Yeah, so the idea for this paper was really coming from, you know, me being interested in India and migration and reading a lot of articles and books about, you know, this Indian success story of immigration, which very much focused on migration to the U.S., of course, but also to Europe. And then I came to start this project for my PhD and I'm like, wait, okay, but what about the migrants um, to the Gulf countries? Why nobody really talks about them? And with that, I also mean the Indian state. So very differently from example Kerala, the Indian state really doesn't mention the Gulf migrants. So there's, for example, the kind of more symbolic policies such as the Indian National Hero Day or also the days catering to the Indian diaspora where diaspora members are being invited back to India to kind of celebrate their success and which is really showcasing also a lot of, you know, these uh, very successful people who, yeah, quote unquote, made it. <laughs> and Gulf migration is not really a topic there. And I was really struck by that. And I, w I wanted to understand why that is. So in that piece, I first compared what kind of policies um, are in place. So there are these more substantive policies which give rights, especially through the overseas citizenship of India, which is not really a citizenship, but provides almost the same rights as for an Indian citizen. And these are mostly people who can acquire citizenship abroad, such as in the US or in Europe, because most Gulf migrants, the majority of Gulf migrants, they cannot because um, there are no pathways to citizenship in the Gulf countries for them. And yeah, as I mentioned before, I think looking at citizenship and the citizen state relations is really key here. So to look at immigrants as citizens and to think through what is their inclusion as citizens before migration? And I think understanding there is a lot of exclusion and marginalization of groups who then would be potential migra migrants to the Gulf countries and to low-wage employment. That is really key to understand why the Indian state is really not that interested in catering engaging through transnational policies. So if you think about also citizens having a value for states, they're just not as valuable or attractive. They do not represent the country in the sense as India would like to be represented. And interesting here is 
that Gulf migrants and um, we cannot differentiate between who exa exactly sends the remittances. So it can be also people in higher paid jobs, but the Gulf region sends higher amounts of remittances than any other region in the world. So their financial contribution is definitely there and important. And of course, if you think about India again as a federal polity, I think the importance of Gulf migration is probably higher for some regions than others. Um, and also the political effects in terms of how certain policies would affect electoral decisions differ between states. So for the Indian federal state, they are not really affected by a migrant vote, whereas for subnational state it might well make a difference if they cater to, to that population or not in terms of policies, as we see with Kerala, where the political involvement of migrants is much higher. And this is really also a topic of on the political agendas of all parties present in Kerala. So I think there's also that aspect. But most centrally is really thinking through how certain factors of marginalization as religion, caste, but also class, and they all intersect in this case affects understandings of citizenship and yeah also of who is deserving of all these so-called diaspora policies in the end there are nation building tools right mm -hmm. so yeah this is something which I, I try to highlight throughout my research really to center on perspective of citizenship to understand how immigrant states treat their immigrants so are you saying that there's a big difference between how India treats its migrants going to the Gulf versus, let's say, other kinds of migrants going to the U.S. or Australia or Europe? Yes, the differentiation here takes place along the lines of skill. So that is how also the Indian government differentiates between immigrant based on immigration law. So there's a law from the 19th which regulates the immigration of so-called low-skilled migrants and that is defined um, by their educational standards. So if somebody has a, an education lesser than a high school degree of a 10th standard and my, is intending to migrate to the Gulf countries as well um, several other Middle Eastern countries and Malaysia and Singapore, the person needs to undergo a so-called immigration check required process, which is supposed to protect the person. So it needs to register with the so-called protector of immigrants. And the Indian state also has the possibility to deny the immigration. And especially also for women under 30 who are attending to, for example, migrate for domestic work, they're not allowed. So there's a so-called migration ban for that group, and which yeah, basically is an immigration restriction, right? It's a control and regulation of immigration of a certain part of the population, whereas anybody else who doesn't fall into that category can just immigrate freely. So there's a clear distinction in law 
the policies um, set in place by the Indian state to really follow these two lines. Interesting, also women and students are considered as vulnerable groups. So this is much more about the logic of protection than, you know, the inclusion into the nation through these policies. It's for me very fascinating to think, you know, India now has a new policy which tries to protect women from marriage scams in Canada. So there are the groups which the Indian state think who is being able to take care of themselves and also to be mature and responsible enough and who is vulnerable in that sense. So I think this is another aspect which which is interesting when looking at this differentiation in policies. There is a rationale of protection and vulnerability to prevent people to be exploited. But it also, on the other hand, means that the autonomy of migrants is actually limited and their freedom of movement, in a sense, restricted. Just to wrap things up, what are the new things that we understand about migration or migration studies if we understood India on its own terms? We need to think about India um, as this federal state, so where regions really matter in terms of politics and policy making, which also then translate into thinking about immigrant policies. So national states have that leeway to determine and frame their own policies and also to think about how this then creates differences in outreach to different populations depending on their origin. So to really think about how citizenship is layered in India. So if you're a member of the Indian federal state, but you can be also a member of national states and that determines the level of social protection you receive or not. And I think that also ties back to that notion of how immigrants are seen and treated also depends on how they are seen and treated as citizens already before the migration process. So there are differences in how the Indian federal state but also subnational states perceive citizens and immigrants and how deserving they perceive them to be. So I think this is also something which probably has to do with the with the emergence or the development of post-colonial citizenship in India, the different cleavages which matter here in the sense that, of course, Religion and class are aspects, but I think how castes um, plays out in immigrant policies also is not that much explored at the moment. And the third point, which I think should be stressed here, to think about how colonial legacies play out. For example, the immigration law, which I mentioned before, that is basically based on immigration regulation of the British colonial administration in the 1980s to govern intended migration, to make a distinction between unfree and free labor, so to kind of signal that intended migrants would be not slaves, but free, mig uh, free migrants. And 
in that sense, this still plays out today, right? This distinction between unfree and free labor, where the Indian state says, okay, we have these regulations for migrants into low-wage employment in the Gulf to ensure they're free, but actually they regulate and control immigration. So we cannot really say it's free migration, right? Because the state always has the possibility to restrict that um, person from immigrating. And I think in, th in that sense, really stressing again that colonial legacies also really determine how South-to-South -South migration is being structured today. I think we, sh we should really we should really take that into consideration. This are, these are dynamics which are not only limited to North-South migration, but also really play out in all kinds of ways in global migration. Mira Burmeister-Rudolph is a PhD candidate at the Department of Political Science at the University of Amsterdam. Her research projects explore why and how social protection policies towards low-skilled labor immigrants are put in place by origin countries. In particular, she is currently investigating migration from South Asian countries to the Gulf Cooperation Council region. If you enjoy the Migration Podcast, please consider liking and following us. Thanks for listening.